the message I want to bring to you this morning is based off the book of Luke. I'm going to stay in the book of Luke here for a little while. It's going to be kind of like an ongoing theme. Last week, we talked about how Jesus had the triumphal entry. And we talked about how Jesus was saddened as he climbed the hills over Bethany and Bethpage and overlooking Jerusalem, he wept. I am so glad that the Bible reveals to us Jesus' humanity. Because we were created in his image also. We don't stop to think about that. We said we were created in God's image, right? But Jesus is God. Jesus is portrayed as fully human and fully divine. So this morning I want to continue with this theme from the book of Luke uh, entitled The Gospel. And it's, going to, and it's found in the entirety of, of the sermons based off this text, Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. So before I begin, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray together. Father God, we are grateful to be in the place where we can come and worship you. Lord, as we're about to open your word, I pray that you, you help us understand and to see what we need to see. Lord, it may be different from all of us, but there's always a message that is individually pertinent when we open scriptures. And I pray that you will give us the humility to, to accept your message for, for us as individuals this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Help me out. Context is everything. Some of you are catching on. I like it. Some of you are, okay, where's he going? But context is everything, right? So we just finished, as I, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. What I didn't talk about is that right after he rode on that donkey into Jerusalem, he walked into the temple and he created havoc. He cleansed the temple, per se, because he walked in and saw all these individuals who were selling and, and treated the, the temple as a marketplace. And then he's, this is where it's famously quoted, is that my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. So let's look at this text. So Luke chapter 20, and it says this, he taught at the temple. He taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priest and the scribes with their elders confronted him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? Let me put this into a more contemporary perspective. Who in your right mind do you think you are? Who told you you could do this? 
Who told you you could be teaching, preaching the way you're doing right now? What are your credentials? What's your formal education? Have you studied theology? Have you gone to the seminary? Are you an ordained pastor? I'm getting a little bit too far. But essentially, that's what they were asking. Who gave you the authority to do these things? And what in the world are you doing? As I shared also last week, I've never been to, I've never been to Jerusalem, but I, I, I've seen pictures that in Jerusalem, there is a mock-up of the temple as it was constructed, Herod's temple, before it was, dest- it was destroyed. A simple architectural mock-up. And I want to point out to you that when Jesus came into the temple, so we understand the context of all of this, he came into the temple. If you can see the laser, this is the outer court. This is where the marketplace was taking place. Okay, So everything there was filled with, with, with sellers, with, with merchants, with whatever it is that you you can think of, but it wasn't that they were out of place. You see, people would come from all over the the, the world, essentially, because they would pilgrim to Jerusalem, and they wouldn't carry their offerings, they wouldn't carry their, their sacrifice with them all the way, but they would come to the temple, and they would purchase the offering right there and then. I mean, it only makes sense. So why it was Jesus overthrowing the temple or cleansing the temple is because the emphasis was no longer on the sacrifice, but on the exchange of the money for the sacrifice. So they had taken something that was good and turned it into something that was unacceptable. So now we look at Herod's temple. Now, for you to have an understanding, keep this fun little fact in mind. They started building this temple right around the year 19 B.C. And it didn't finish until 64 A.D. At its pinnacle, the height of the temple was about 15 stories high. So now when you understand this context, when Jesus is riding up as he's coming for the triumphal entry and, and, and the sun is, 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 is on the top, he's seeing the temple. The very first image that he has of Jerusalem is the top of the ten, temple that was laden with gold-like material that glistened when the sun hit it. And as he comes over that, that mountaintop, that hilltop in Beth, between Bethany and, and, and Bethpage, he sees the temple and he sees Jerusalem and he starts crying. So he eventually makes his way into the temple, creates havoc, cleans out the courtyard, and then the Bible says here, he went into the temple daily. Now, Keep in mind also the context. He's coming. He's at the last week of his life. He's at the last week where he's preaching. He's teaching. 
And he's doing all of these things, right? As we just read here in verse 1. Now it happened on one of those days. It happened any time between Sunday and Thursday. We don't know which day it is. But during one of these days, it says that he was teaching. He taught the people in the temple. Now understanding all of this gives us a really good grasp on what is about to take place. The Bible says that he was preaching the gospel. Let me ask you a question. What is the gospel? That's a definition of it. What is it? Hmm, interesting, right? Well, let's look. When we look at it, the Bible is its own interpreter. Four times in the book of Luke, the word gospel is utilized. So why not look just in the book of Luke to see how he defines what the gospel is, right? So let's look at our very first one. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. To the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is Luke chapter 4. So here he's describing the gospel, who it's for. Right? It's to the poor. It's to the brokenhearted. It's to those who are captives. It's those who cannot see. And it's those who are oppressed. This is the good news to these individuals. Is there anyone here this morning who is feeling brokenhearted? Is there anybody here this morning who is captive to sin? Is there anybody here this morning who, is, who has felt oppressed either because of religion or because of race or because of fill in the blank? The gospel is good news for you. But here's the interesting aspect. Jesus is quoting a text from the Old Testament. Verbatim. Isaiah chapter 61. Right? Here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. What's missing? Can you go back one slide, please? What's the difference between this text here in Luke chapter 4, verses 18, to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1? Jesus adds sight to the blind. Again, context is everything. When, when, when God is, is, is giving this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61 to Isaiah, the people of, of God are under captivity. They have lost their identity as God's children because they are now under captivity. And when we fast forward to Jesus' time, they are, no, they are under a different type of captivity. They're under the Roman rule. 
But they had created an, an atmosphere and an idea that they were the ones who possessed the truth. Have you heard that somewhere? We become dangerous. And we become a danger to ourselves when we begin to cling to things, thinking that we are the sole proprietor of that truth. And that was what happened with Israel. So Jesus adds, giving sight to the blind, because he's not just talking about a, a physical handicap, he's talking about a spiritual handicap as well. But let's continue. The second, the second time that the word gospel is found is Luke chapter 7, verse 22. And this is a question from Jesus' own family member, John the Baptist. Right? And if you go back to the story of, of when Martha, not Martha, when uh, Elizabeth and Mary met, and the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped, they hadn't even met, right? So he's brought up, said, listen, you have a cousin. Can you imagine the conversation between mother and, and, and child and, and father and child? Like, hey, you have a cousin. He's special. Let me tell you how special he is. He is our Messiah. He's the one who has been promised to us for decades, for centuries. And he's finally come. He's the one that we've been looking for, that we've heard about for thousands of years since Adam sinned. He's your cousin. Can you imagine that conversation? Pretty hard to believe when you think about it. But here he is, his own cousin is now in prison because he called sin by its rightful name. And there will come a time when you and I will be scrutinized, we will be oppressed, we will be downtrodden because we are calling sin by its name. If it's not happening already. In a world where politically correctness is a must, it becomes difficult to call a sin by its name. And so here, here is John the Baptist in prison just before he's about to die, he sends his disciples over to Jesus and asks them, hey, are you the one, or do we need to look for another? I love Jesus' reply. Here's what he says. Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus is echoing the Old Testament, reminding John that the prophecies about the Messiah are true. That the one that he was preaching about in, in, in the Jordan River reflect the theology of who Jesus is right now. So 
But when we come to the third occurrence of the word of gospel in, in the book of Luke, we find it in, in Luke 19 where Jesus commissions the 12 to go out and preach the gospel. He says, hey, don't take extra clothes. Just take, take, take what you have with you. Two by two, you go and you preach. You do this. You, they healed. They performed miracles. And the gospel was preached everywhere in that world. So when we read a text like this, that he was preaching the gospel, Jesus was preaching about himself, essentially. He wasn't preaching an idea of a coming Messiah. He was preaching the Messiah right there in the flesh. So when the question is asked of Jesus, who do you think you are? What authority has been given? It's because when you look at the context, the Pharisees and the scribes knew what he was talking about, knew exactly what, it, what Jesus was meaning. He wasn't mincing words. He was actually throwing it back in their faces because, listen, you've had this idea and you know what the gospel is supposed to be, but you don't act on it. And so he's, he asked them a question. And I love, I, I think Jesus has a tremendous sense of humor. Because they ask him, by what authority do you do this? So I said, well, let me ask you a question. When John, when John, my cousin, by the way, that is, that is dead now, what authority did he have when he baptized in the river? What authority did John have when he baptized in the river? You tell me. Well, I don't know. I mean, if we tell him that it was God, he's going to tell us, well, then there you go. If I tell him we don't know um, that it was man's, he will say, well, then why didn't you say anything? Oh, I got it. We don't know what authority he had. Well, then I won't tell you either. Touche. And so they left. Angry with Jesus, right? Actually, he didn't leave yet, but they were angry. It says, verse 9, it says, Then he began to tell them this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to the vine dressers. And he went on into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers, that they may give him some of the fine fruit of the vineyard, but the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him and cast him out. Goodness. Did this owner not do any background screening on these individuals? He needs indeed. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they'll respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. 
that the inheritance may be ours. Let me pause here for a minute. Did you know this is actually biblical? When uh, an owner of an estate or a farm did not have children, that would be passed on to his servant. Well, pastor, how do you know? Easy. Genesis. Abram, before he became Abraham, had a, had a, a, a servant named Eliezer. And before Isaac was born, Eliezer was due in line to be the recipient of all of Abram's wealth. It was customary at the time that when the owner of a vineyard, if he didn't have a son or an heir, it would be passed on to the servants. So here, Jesus is actually quoting law that they were very familiar with. So they cast him, going back, verse 15, so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, that will, what will the owner of the vineyard do? So here, Jesus is, stops, right? He, tell, he stops telling the story, and he, says, and he faces the people, and he asks the people the question. This is not part of the parable. The parable is over. So, he, so they ask him, excuse me, so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyards to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Who's the they? The people. Because when you read the beginning of this parable, Jesus isn't talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the people. He's addressing the people as a whole. And so the people are thinking also that the owner of the vineyard is going to follow the law and give the, the vineyard to the servants. So they were, they were shocked that Jesus said that the owner of the vineyard is going to come and destroy them. And the word that's used there is to actually obliterate, pulverize. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. He's going to come. He's going to give it to somebody else. You see, Jesus also tells this parable because the, the Pharisees as well as the people are very familiar with the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, there's a story of, a, there's actually a parable of a vineyard also where God is telling his people, says, listen, I've taken this beautiful land and i've planted planted a vineyard and as i planted this vineyard i set it up and i planted these beautiful vines and expecting these sweet fruit but they came out bitter you know in they be they came out wild When I used to live in, in Bering Springs, right around 
late August, early September, you can drive down Old 31 and you can smell the grapes in the air in the fall. Those are good grapes. But where my parents live in Lancaster, there are some wild grapes that you can also smell, and they smell real good. But when you put it in your mouth, they are bitter. They're wild. They're not cultivated. And so Jesus is is speaking a parable that is also very familiar to their context. Some of you may be thinking, Pastor Art, is this going to get good at any time? You're talking about death and destruction, judgment. Hear me out. Because Jesus isn't done yet talking to the people. He says, when they heard this, they said, certainly not. And he said, what is it then? It's written, verse 17. What then is is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Remember I told you that the the temple began in 19 BC and didn't finish until 64 AD? There was construction taking place around, and Jesus quoted Psalm 118 that we looked at last week, which was a pilgrimage uh, psalm that they would sing on their way to the temple to offer sacrifices. And at the very end of Psalm 118, you, you find this part of this text. The, chief, the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. The one that they, they, they looked over, it was just sitting around there. It was never found. They didn't have a place for it. They ignored it. They are like, nah, it's not going to fit. So when Jesus says the next words, whoever falls on that stone, The word fall here is implied that there is an action that leads to that fall. You don't just happen to fall. And so when you have, and if you do a study on the word fall in the Bible, as mundane as that may sound, you will see that it happens as a result of an action. When the... That one person, the, of the one lepers of the ten that was healed, he comes and he falls before. That's an intentional action. You, so falling is a consequence of something. Falling is a consequence of either tripping, you're walking, you're not seeing. But he says, happy are those that are fall on this, on this stone because you will be broken. But if the stone falls on you, it will crush you. It will pulverize you. What does this all mean? In the book, Christ Object Lessons, it says, as God had desired to make of his people Israel a praise and a glory. See, God had given them everything, every advantage, God withheld from them nothing favorable in the formation of character that would make them the representatives of himself. This is still true to us today. You are God's representatives. This is what the gospel essentially becomes. You being the vessels to preach to the brokenhearted, to the oppressed, to the blind who needs to see, 
spiritually. Because the moment that you choose to side with Jesus, there is no requirement that God is not going to fulfill. If you say, well, I can't do this, I'm not gifted, God will give you the gift. He'll make a way. He'll provide. Oh, but I can't because of my job, or I can't because whatever excuse you have, God has heard it. And you know what he says? So what? Read this. He makes every provision for its fulfillment. Through the grace of Christ, we may accomplish everything that God requires. He's not over. All the riches of heaven are to be revealed through God's people. Who's going to reveal God's riches if it's not you or I? Herein is my Father glorified. Christ says that you bear much fruit, so, so shall you be my disciples. You see, the gospel isn't about an idea. It's not about understanding what it is in terms of a definition. The gospel is an action. The gospel is you and I working for the Father. The gospel is about what you can do. Taking that old saying from JFK, ask not what God, ask not God what you can. I don't know, I'm messing myself up. <laughs> ask not what you can do for God. No, ask not what God can do for you. There you go. That's going to be edited. Ask not what God can do for you, but ask, but say, what can I do for God? That's what the gospel is. But you're saying, yes, but my good works are nothing but filthy rags. It is when it's of your own strength. But God is going to allow every blessing, every richness of heaven he will make the 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 roads clear for you he'll open the doors but are you willing to fall on the rock you see the israelites were not willing to fall on the rock they weren't willing to be broken. They weren't willing to set aside their most prized possession of being God's chosen people. That was God's purpose from the get-go. He was, he was, the idea and, and, and concept of, of God choosing Israel was so that they would be his representatives. They would go out and spread out to eventually recreate the earth to what he intended. That was the ideal. But that didn't happen because they cling to the ideology of I am God's chosen, therefore you, I'm better than you. That's why you and I, and I'm putting myself into this, we need to be broken. We need to fall on that rock. Well, pastor, I have a hard time falling. I don't want to fall because I like where I'm at. Well, then the stone will fall on you. 
there's only two ways to two outcomes of this story. You either allow yourself allow yourself to fall and God break you so he can rebuild you. Or you allow the stone to pulverize you. You see, each of us have a story to tell. God's gospel isn't about you being qualified with a seminary degree or with an ordination. God's calling and God's gospel is about you sharing your story. Because the story that God, that Christ shared with us is his story. But his story has changed my life and it has changed yours. But what are you doing to share it? How is the world going to become a better place if you don't share your story? That's what the gospel is. Nothing more, nothing less than your story of how God came into your life and changed you. That's what he was teaching. I mean, can you think about the individuals who witnessed Jesus performing miracle after miracle? Lazarus being raised from the dead, witnessing all of this. What bigger story is there than a dead rising to life? You see, Jesus added that snippet of the blind disease because you and I also can be, become blinded to our own ineffectiveness. In order for us to see, we need to fall on the rock. And it is my prayer that as we grow together, that you will have the courage to say, Lord, help me to trip and fall on you, that I may fall on the rock, that you may break me, but yet I know you will remold me, you will refashion me. So then I can share my story and you be lifted up. May God bless you.